Hello and welcome to Wealth of Knowledge. I'm your host, Antonio Barbera, and in this final installment of the Leaders Talk series, we're joined by U.S. News President and CEO Bill Holliber as he shares three interviews he conducted at the World Economic Forum in Davos, Switzerland. Bill, thank you for joining me. Thank you, Antonio. Let's get right into it. We have three interviews here, uh, so let's get started. The first interview we're going to hear in a little bit is with Tom Moriarty, Executive Vice President, Chief Policy and External Affairs Officer and General Counsel at CVS Health. What was the focus of your conversation with Tom? You know, again, it's centered around 21st century leadership. Each of these conversations, and, and with Tom, it really depends what industry you work in. So Tom's in the healthcare industry. And, uh, you know, the highlights of what we discussed is, in continuation of what other people have talked about, is building a really good team. And Tom talked a lot about surrounding people that supplemented things that maybe he didn't have, but build, build a team around him so that he would be able to have the knowledge and the experience to move forward on, on a particular plan. You know, years ago, uh, it was pretty much in healthcare, you dealt with, you know, traditional regulators, local, federal, and state. But today, his challenge is, is communicating that vision, but not just with their employees, all the way down, uh, even with the consumers, they go to, go to their uh, retail stores whether it be through the front of their store, but even the pharmacies. So that vision, understanding what that company is trying to accomplish. So there's a continuous effort on his part and his team to do constant communication through the system all the way down to the people that are actually buying and using using and work, going to their stores. You know, healthcare, again, is becoming more and more local. So you'll hear Tom talk a lot about that and what... Uh, how important that's going to be, uh, not only to help the uh, consumers, the patients that they interact with at a CVS, but also creating a sustainable healthcare solution. And sustainability is another thing that uh, they feel very strongly about, that over time, we should see, hopefully, a driving down costs. And I think they'll be touching on quite a bit of that. So the community level, community engagement is probably a new element of what leadership is needed today, at least at CVS. But we're also hearing that across a lot of the companies uh, that we talk with. CVS Health is in the business of taking care of people. And yet as a leader of a company, Tom has a role in taking care of his own people, the employees. Did you find that commonality impacts his perspective at all on leadership at a large company? That commonality, again, that you'll hear, hear Tom talk about, is has to do with the messaging of the vision. It has to be very clear. It uh, has to be very understandable. It has to be simple to understand so that his st- the teams of people that work at CVS can embrace it. And then a constant line kind of communication and recommunication over and over, over again so that you prove that concept out. They prove out that vision, and you get people to embrace that over time. But it's not just a, this is what we want to do. It's, it's a continual effort to communicate, to reinforce what the vision is throughout the company. Coming up next is an interview between Bill and Tom Moriarty, the Executive Vice President, Chief Policy and External Affairs Officer, and General Counsel at CVS Health. So, Tom, 21st century leadership, very broad topic. 
a lot of discussions going on about what that really means. From you, your point and the work that you do, what are you sort of recognizing uh, what the most important qualities are successful leadership today? Well, there are a few things. First off, I think it's really important to understand and express a vision so that as you act, um, people can look at what you're doing and follow that. But more importantly, also how you articulate it and how you bring people along. Because you cannot simply say a message. People have to engage with it and work with it and then bring it forward as well as a total group, not as an individual. Yeah, and, and talk about the communication of that because the vision is great and then you, know, you could leave and, and not say any more. But what, what has to happen after the vision is, is established? Yeah, I, th I think there's an articulation that has to be very clear and understandable and in some levels almost relatively simple so folks can embrace it. But then it is a constant kind of communication, recommunication of that message because the more you articulate it, the more you can see the vision come to life, the more you can use those examples as ways to build further in dri driving that message forward. So how does that translate to like leadership behavior? So as a leader and, and what are the things, sort of the specific things that have to happen during that process? Well, I think it's really important as a leader that first off you have a really good team. Mm -hmm. uh, don't be afraid to surround yourself with folks who are smarter than you are mm -hmm. because honestly as you look back in history, some of our greatest leaders recognized where their shortcomings were and built uh, skill sets around that to build an even stronger team. And so how that gets articulated really is first and foremost is in your team and then you how you drive that message with the team and everybody who's engaged with those leaders as well. So traditional leadership, way companies have operated uh, you know, years ago, there's a lot of things that are influencing those norms today. What are the things that you're, rec that you're seeing in, in your company that are, have changed the way you work with your clients, yeah. work with your uh, employees? Well, if you go back five, ten years ago, the, what I will call the regulators of the business were what you would consider traditional regulators. You know, it was the, the legislators, the, the federal and state regulators. More and more so as we go forward, what's happening in your communities and who the non-government regulators are and how you engage with them have as much if not more influence on your business than the traditional regulators do. So that engagement strategy, that messaging strategy is really, really important. Sounds like citizens have a little more of a voice in your business. Well, uh, it, if you look at where we are, we're on almost every corner in the United States, so right. we engage with millions of people each and every day. So listening and engaging with those individuals is really, really important. So in your role, which is very unique in a lot of ways in terms of the leadership that CVS is involved in. You're at the intersection of sort of the private sector, mm -hmm. government, NGOs, and citizens. So there's a lot, lot of people you have to sort of bring together and, and make that work. What, what are the sort of things that you do as it relates to sort of the value-based healthcare by bringing all those groups together and how does it actually work at, at the mm -hmm. community level? Yeah. And I think that intersection that you referenced, it's, it's probably true in a lot of businesses, but it's probably the most true in healthcare. Healthcare is very local, it's very personal. People have very distinct and unique feelings about healthcare. And so how you engage on some key issues, whether it's privacy, value-based care, uh, cost of pharmaceuticals, cost of medicine overall, the rise in cost of healthcare, understanding all of those elements and then engaging with the patient at a very human level is a big part of what we're doing as we go forward. So the leadership 
role that the CVS is, is taking in healthcare is unique in a lot of ways. And, and in terms of the purpose-driven part of your business, what are the things that you're focused on as it relates to healthcare for CVS? Well, I think, you know, where we started in terms of the, the strategy and, and how we came together with Aetna was we recognized the convergence that was happening in what some have called the democratization of healthcare, mm-hmm. um, whether it's because of high costs and in the United States, high deductible health plans pushing more responsibility to the individual, and then really the devices and the ability, frankly, to access healthcare in a lot of non-traditional settings. How we arrange that and how we bring the right assets to bear to drive a more efficient but better outcome model, that's what's, what's driving us today. And, and what are the sort of the programs and things that that help that process get embedded into that transition of what you're doing in healthcare. Give us an example of some of the real life things that you're working on. Sure, I mean, one one real concrete uh, is a program we rolled out probably six or seven months ago called Real-Time Benefits. Because of high deductible health plans and the individual having to pay a lot more out of their pocket dollar one coverage, there really wasn't transparency for the patient, the consumer, to have a choice as to what pharmaceutical to purchase. Mm -hmm. Well, we now can give that information to the doctor, give five therapeutic alternatives that show the cost and what it's going to cost you as an individual, and you and your doctor can have a conversation about what is the right medicine, but also what's the most cost effective for you at the same time. So driving that transparency to the consumer level, that's just one, you know, one aspect of what we're going to be doing as we go forward with the Aetna. So value-based care, you know, uh, 18% in the United States, 18% of uh, the GDP is in healthcare. You know, you have a mission right. to drive down costs uh, for the consumer and in the end. And with the acquisition of Aetna, there's an opportunity to leverage that e- even further in some of the plans. What are the things you're doing, what, sort of the vision at the community level of, of incorporating Aetna into that, uh, that purpose, purpose-driven strategy? in healthcare. So a number of things, but I guess just a few examples. So the 18% of GDP, that's what it is today. Right. It's projected over the next several years to go to actually 20 or 22%. That's another $250 billion each year. Mm. That's not going to be available for education, infrastructure, other important public policy aspects. So the first thing we have to do is start slowing that the slope of that curve and then start bringing it down. But if you look at what you can do at a community level and community engagement, um, we were in Washington very recently at an event and I was talking to uh, a group that we had uh, made a charitable donation to. Right. Uh, and it was primarily a very small, relatively small donation, but it was around having folks in the community educated as to where they could access health care and lower cost sites of care. And they were able to correlate a $25,000 donation into a one and a half million dollar savings from reduced ER visits going to the right sites for care. Mm-hmm. So when you think about if you can activate a community network, it's not real, you know, it's, it, it can be really big at a local level, mm-hmm. and you do that across community by community, you can really start affecting change. You know, it's really interesting, you know, here at the World Economic Forum, and, and if you think about the UN uh, Sustainable Development Goals, the role that you're playing in, in their number their their third goal, which which is you know uh, good health, well-being, and everything, which which is a, and it's a big effort uh, on your part, but also the seventeenth goal, which is developing partnerships right. at the same time. 
How does that work in, in, in terms of being connected with CVS Health in Action? Right. Because you're also trying to provide accountability mixed in with all of that as well. Yeah, so it really is a continuum. I mean, if you look, we have roughly uh, 10,000 locations in the, in the U.S. Mm. Each of those will essentially become health centers where folks can access care, access information to care. Uh, and they exist a lot today. The role of the pharmacist will expand. But more importantly, it's the intersection of not only the physical footprint, but then what all the devices and telepresence and other things can deliver for you. So having that an integrated suite of services where you can access care when you need it, how you need it, and at the lowest cost for you, mm -hmm. that's ultimately how we're going to build this, and that's how you're going to bend the cost curve. So as a company being a role model in healthcare transformation, what keeps you up at night in terms of being in that leadership position in doing that? What keeps you up at night? Well, it's, it, it's a huge healthcare economy. It's $3.2 trillion in the yeah. U.S., uh, and that cost curve is unsustainable. So we need to move more quickly, and the sooner we can bring solutions to the market, I think the better, first off, for patients, but then ultimately for the system overall, as we can reinvest some of these dollars into other areas that are priorities like infrastructure, education, uh, et cetera. It is amazing how all the different parts of what citizens need to improve the quality of life for citizens and things like that, how important healthcare is in that, and it's great that you recognize that. So just sort of wrapping things up a little bit, you know, we talked about vision and, and culture and communication and all that. Where did you learn that? Who do, who do you look over the years? Who have you admired? Who's had the most influence on you personally from a leadership perspective? Well, there's probably been several, both from, you know, just reading, but also, you know, and growing up in my career, mentors are hugely important. Mm -hmm. um, and I try to mentor, you know, as we go along as well. Uh, but just reading, you know, whether it was Lincoln or Theodore Roosevelt, if you looked at how they built sort of their leadership style, Lincoln was not afraid to surround himself with people who were smarter than he was. Right. And that, I learned an awful lot from that. And then also just from a Teddy Roosevelt sort of perspective is not being afraid to take risk. It's not being, you know, taking unnecessary risk, but when you know you have the capability and you know you have it within you to do something, don't be afraid to do it. That's great. Well, thank you very much for all your time. Great, great to be time. with you. Bill, in the next interview coming up, you spoke with Heather Johnson. Vice President of Sustainability and Corporate Responsibility at Ericsson, the multinational networking and telecommunications company. What are the key takeaways that listeners should focus on from this interview? I think Heather sits in a very unique place within Ericsson. She's been there for about 21 years. And she, she plays a key role in working with Ericsson, their products, their customers, provide inclusivity, and think about the future of the planet and, and climate change. They have vested interested in that. They've been doing it for years. And she's extremely passionate. And I think you'll, when you hear her interview, you, you'll see how passionate she is. The heart of what she does, the entire ecosystem at Ericsson centers around uh, sustainability. And sustainability is a topic that a lot of global countries are connecting with. And it centers around the 17 sustainable goals that the UN put out there. Uh, so I urge you to go to the UN site and, and take a look at that. It's important. They're good. They're a good organizing principle. And I think she'll talk, she'll talk a lot about that. Being a technology company, they really focused a lot on sustainable goal number nine, which is industry innovation and infrastructure. 
Ericsson being an, a telecommunication infrastructure company. So how they're applying that is really interesting. And there's a great story uh, about uh, some of the things that they're doing in uh, countries around the world with a program called Technology for Good, and then also in the education space, Connect to Learn. So leveraging their technology for the greater good. They see the world as a continuum. They see a world as if you build and create equality and diversity, improve what those what people have uh, in their life and sustainable development, that you'll then lift the world and there'll be a better economy, a better life for all. And that's probably the most interesting thing. And you'll see her or hear her talk about that throughout our conversation. So what you'll hear next is Bill's interview with Heather Johnson, the Vice President of Sustainability and Corporate Responsibility at Ericsson. So let, let's talk a little bit about sustainability, but let's, let's look at it from the perspective of the 21st century, right? In terms of 21st century leadership, everything related to sustainability, what are the issues that really are represented in sustainability that companies, leaders, workforces, citizens are really faced with today? Well, I think one of the fundamental pillars of sustainability is really thinking about inclusivity. I mean, because when we think about our planet, when we think about climate action, for example, one of the most pressing challenges, it's so relevant and we're hearing about it every day. I mean, we have to think about the entire ecosystem. And I think that's at the heart of sustainability. It's really thinking about the actions you take, the impacts you make, and how to uh, really uh, upscale the positive impacts and reduce the negative ones. And how does that work <laughs> within a company in, in real reality? Well, I'll just give you a little uh, perspective from Ericsson, uh, the telecom company that I work for. We were actually really at the start of the launch of the Sustainable <coughs> Development Goals. We were quite early out at a time when, to be perfectly frank, I think a lot of companies questioned whether they had a role in uh, helping to achieve the goals. And um, what is, I think, uh, really uh, powerful about the information and communications technology uh, sector is that those solutions do underpin all 17 goals mm -hmm. and I think that that's an important message from our industry perspective to really say there are powerful solutions that will accelerate achievement of every single one of the 17 goals. Mm -hmm. Now you ask how do you do that as a company? You're right, it's impossible to tackle all 17, I think, realistically and comprehensively as one entity. So then you have to really think about your core. Where is it that you make the difference? Where? And so for uh, Ericsson, as an example, because we're a technology company, we have uh, really started to look at SDG 9, and that's industry, innovation, and infrastructure. That's really at the core. Of course, that impacts across all 17, but we really think that, that that's where we start. And I think that that's what, if I would give advice to companies, think about your core, think about what it is that you do and how that can make a contribution. So innovation uh, is a very broad term. It means different things to different people, but the innovation that's going on, the disruption at technology and, and, and Ericsson being a technology company, you're in the, in the center of that. How, how does that work within your company to leverage that technology for the greater good? So I think, you know, just to give a little uh, context, Ericsson is 
laying the, I would say, foundation for sustainable development. Now, I'm not talking about the goals per se. I'm right. Mobile broadband networks are really going to be essential for uh, the way that countries develop. And we're at a 50-50 moment, is what we're talking about in the industry. That is, 50% of the world's population is connected and 50% isn't. So that next 50%, how they will access the internet is through mobile broadband. It's through these mobile broadband networks. So, you know, we really feel that that laying the platform allows for innovation. Ericsson alone won't come up with every uh, great solution, but to be able, we enable that uh, platform to uh, find solutions. We can then work. I mean, we are the technology experts in this field. So then we need to go and work with education experts to talk about how do we reach education goals or health experts. How can they use these platforms? So I think innovation really is a lot about going back to this inclusivity and collaboration. How do you really bring these ecosystems together? And I think that, that that's what we found is the key. So Ericsson as a culture and its people, it sounds like this is a big part of, of who Ericsson is. Could you describe how that purpose-driven aspect is and how your employees work within that as well? Absolutely. So we have uh, really thought a lot about this uh, and and from a purpose perspective, uh, articulating it as empowering an intelligent, sustainable, and connected world. And I think it really captures, you know, this empowerment, like I said, really, you know, allowing others to uh, innovate and also find solutions themselves. Um, but I also am really delighted that sustainability is at the heart of that purpose statement. And uh, that's so crucial. If I really give you just a context, our founder story, Lars Magnus Ericsson, uh, you know, over 140 years ago, he was a young Swedish engineer who had the opportunity to, he made a decision, should he make communication available for all or exclusively to sort of a select community? And he, he decided, I will make this available to all. And I think we have been, you know, whether whatever communication means, you know, 140 years ago or to today, also find solutions themselves. Um, but I also am really delighted that sustainability is at the heart of that purpose statement. And uh, that's so crucial. If I really give you just a context, our founder story, Lars Magnus Ericsson, uh, you know, over 140 years ago, he was a young Swedish engineer who had the opportunity to, he made a decision, should he make communication available for all or exclusively to sort of a select community? And he, he decided, I will make this available to all. And I think we have been, you know, whether, whatever communication means, you know, 140 years ago or to today, that ethos really uh, comes through and has been driving, I think, the, the um, you know, the, this purpose-driven, even, you know, before that people were talking about it, that, that we wanted to continue to realize that vision. That's really exciting to, to hear that. So, you're at the center of telecommunications, and by 2020, which is right around the corner, 90% of the world's population will be covered by mobile broadband networks. So it's massive. There's a lot of opportunity with that, yeah. right, if applied properly. The scale brings an opportunity to address global challenges, sustainable development. Tell us about you know, your, your technology for good initiative, which we found very interesting, and, and the aim to make life better around the world. So uh, we have two flagship technology for good programs. These are programs that are 
where we know that we can make a positive impact with technology. The first one goes back 19 years. It's an employee volunteer program. It's called Ericsson Response. We go together with the UN after a natural disaster and we put together emergency telecommunications equipment to allow humanitarian relief uh, workers to basically serve the needs of the populations that are affected. What's interesting about this program, I mean, again, it's, I think it was public-private partnership before that was uh, even a word right. or a phrase, but um, this is now really developing to uh, not only target the humanitarian workers, but also the affected populations themselves, again, to be really inclusive and make sure that everyone can benefit from from the technology and the platform available. The second uh, flagship program we have is Connect to Learn. This is an education initiative where uh, we're working in 25 countries around the world, benefiting 120,000 students and teachers. And why I say teachers is because not only do we connect schools to uh, the internet through mobile broadband and allow uh, access to, of course, all global education resources, but we put emphasis on making sure that the teachers understand how to use the tools and uh, uh, resources available to them. It's not just sort of delivering a box and uh, you know wishing them good luck. It's thinking about you know power and you know simplicity and 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 everything that uh, that goes to really uh, create that impact. So you've been working at Erica for many years uh, in in the social responsibility area and. But partnerships, as you know, are really important. Uh, without partners, in fact, it's actually one of the seven, it's the 17th uh, SDG That's goal, right. which, which is really interesting. Can you share, you know, some of the partnerships that you're most proud of? Absolutely. Uh, I, you know, and I would, I would kick off by saying, I, you know, uh, when the goals were launched, uh, a, a very uh, well-known Swede, Jan Eliasson, he was the uh, Deputy Secretary General, talked about partnership being the new leadership. And I think that that really is just the driving sort of theme through the, the SDGs. And uh, so to, uh, to reflect on some of the partnerships that have uh, you know, developed um, in our programs, I mean, together with the World Food Program, that is our partner when we go into emergency uh, uh, responses. And what's interesting is that, of course, these missions, they're quite dramatic. It's uh, Haiti or the Philippines or uh, just a, a year ago in the Caribbean, the devastation. Everyone knows the tip of the iceberg is those missions. But I think what makes the partnership really work is actually what's underneath. It's the collaboration, it's the co-development, it's the training, the preparation, so that when you hit the ground, you are working together. And I think it is that, that you know, there's, there's no uh, substitute for really, you know, evolving and developing and working together. Yeah, it's interesting you talk about partnership as a, a leadership quality and the sort of EQ that mm -hmm. is necessary in, in the world today. And it sounds like doing things for their greater good is good for business. Absolutely. I think not only because, uh, you know, making a positive impact in in society really allows for communities to thrive and of course then creates new markets. But I think it's also a lever and, and certainly something we've been hearing a lot about uh, here in Davos this week, uh, a lever for employee engagement. And I mean, this is something, and I would actually almost counter something that we often hear that millennials are the ones that really want to work for purpose-driven companies. I challenge that. I, I work in a company where everyone 
feels committed and really, you know, wanting to contribute to to the company's purpose. And I think that that's something that we will continue to see be a uh, a real um, differentiator. So when you think of leadership qualities, what do you think about those characteristics and traits? What, are, what, are, what do you think they need to be today for 21st century? Well, I think, you know, really where I started off talking about inclusivity and inclusivity at the broadest level. I mean, really, you know, thinking about the different perspectives so that, you know, looking at diversity of not only gender, but also uh, you know, geography. So really understanding cultural context. And I mean, we live in such a global world. Ericsson is in 180 markets. So I mean, to be able to really navigate sort of that global context, I think, is essential. Well, you, you're at the intersection of a very interesting way of work and life. And I'm sure you see most amazing things happen. But who in, in your life, which would be sort of the, wrapping this up, who in your life that has affected you in terms of your leadership uh, qualities? Uh, could you share some of that? Absolutely. So I, I, I will give you an example of a woman that I would, you know, just claim as a, a completely inspiring role model, and that's Mary Robinson, the former president of Ireland. I mean, for many, that would be enough, you know, mm -hmm. to sort of say that your career, you know, that you were a head of state. But um, after she left that office, she continued to drive uh, many important issues. She was driving the uh, business and human rights sort of uh, movement a decade before anyone was talking about it, really chairing this uh, business leadership for, for human rights initiative. That's where I first met her. But she has continued to, I would say, you know, dynamically evolve to be able to meet what's relevant now. So she's also looking at, I mean, she continues to carry with her all her experience, but builds on it and now working a lot on climate justice. She also mentors uh, uh, other um, female leaders and, and stateswomen. And I just, I feel it's such an inspiring uh, example of what you can do to really affect change. Well, it certainly sensed your passion, which is which is wonderful. Well, thank you very much for joining us today. Appreciate thank you so much for having time. me. Good, thank you. The final interview and the final clip from our Leaders Talk series is with Mamuka Bakhtadze, the Prime Minister of Georgia. Can you help set up this clip? So you're probably wondering, we talked to a lot of people in business and, and uh, had the opportunity to talk to Mamuka about his early stage of being the prime minister of the country of Georgia. And what was interesting when talking with him, to me the highlight was, I felt like I was talking to a CEO of a company. And there wasn't a lot of uh, political uh, rhetoric. It was understanding where, as a country, they needed to invest in the 21st century. It's very similar to talking with many other people that I talk with that in the end it comes down to human capital development, uh, whether it be, uh, and he looked at the, the people of Georgia as his human capital. Developing them over time is gonna create a lot of opportunity within their country. And he's leaning very aggressively in the area of education and providing, creating the opportunity for everybody to have a very high quality education in Georgia is going to lead to advances in technology, innovation, uh, startup communities in Georgia. And uh, that's where he, he wants to invest. It's a long-term view. And uh, he's determined to be able to think of it that way. 
And I think that's probably the thing that you're going to take away most about that is constant focus on human capital index, constant focus on embracing disruptive technologies, innovative technologies, but doing that through educating the people that live in Georgia. So you'll now hear the final interview in our Leaders Talk series, where Bill spoke with the Prime Minister of Georgia, Mamuka Bakhtadze. So, Mamuka, being the youngest Prime Minister in the history of, of Georgia is, is quite unique. And we're here to talk about 21st century leadership. And as it relates to your beliefs and your, your traits and what's going on in Georgia, what leadership traits and qualities do you think are really necessary and important to succeed in the 21st century? Well, I think that um, actually the human capital development will be the major focus for any nation in the 21st century. And therefore, I think that for the leadership, it's, uh, for the political leadership, I mean, it's very important to have it as a number one priority. Uh, therefore, kind of investing more in human capital, investing more in education, in healthcare, in sport, is uh, something that should be a priority for any, for any government. Uh, but of course, for many politicians, it's not so easy you know, to, to make such a radical, radical refocusing. Uh, but um, I, I truly believe that the, in, in the 21st century, the most successful nations will be the nations who are going to try and increase its human capital index as much as possible. In Georgia, we have a huge success. We are number six uh, in the World Bank ranking about doing business. Uh, and that's a very big success. Uh, but uh, at the same time, we started in Georgia a very ambitious education sector reform with an aim to increase our human capital. And of course, I do believe that after this reform, Georgia will be as successful in the human capital index as we are successful in the doing business index. So I, I, I truly believe in once again the World Economic Forum in 2019 showed that more and more uh, political leaders are recognizing the, this as a highest priority in their agenda. Yeah, the social issues and everything that's related to that, in investing in the future, creating innovation. Absolutely. It really only happens if you have a community of people, of citizens, right, that are, are educated, that have the opportunity to innovate and create, and it sounds like you're, you're doing that. Absolutely, that's my, my priority, not as a politician, but yeah. uh, as, a, as, a, as an ordinary citizen uh, as well. And the second point is, of course, about uh, disruptive technologies. Mm. So we continue to observe the rise of the many innovative technologies which can become the disruptive technologies for the traditional industries and I think that we, uh, we politicians should be ready for such changes. Uh, you may read uh, some opinion of the experts that actually with uh, such a rapid development of the disruptive technologies we may lose some jobs. Uh, personally, I'm not a big fan of such such opinion. I think that we should uh, support the progress. We should support the technologies, innovative technologies that 
may, may end up as a disruptive technologies for, right. the, for the traditional industries. Why? Because it is in the best interest of humankind. It's funny you bring up regulation because in a lot of ways, regulation slows down innovation, right? Yeah. Slows change. Is that one of the things that you're trying to instill within uh, the country to, uh, to have more of a free market, free cap capitalization, getting capital, private sector, private sector partnerships with... with uh, uh, absolutely, absolutely. We, you know, if you look at the map, uh, Georgia is a natural candidate to become a regional hub. Um, our geographical location right. gives us this advantage. We are serving as a gateway for eight landlord countries. And therefore, we would like to create an environment in Georgia which will help us to make a Georgia regional hub for trade, business, finance, mm. uh, logistics, tourism, and education. And education is directly related to the innovation. Uh, so. And of course, we would like to make an ecosystem in Georgia which will be very friendly for such uh, technologies. Uh, one of the main aim of uh, my reform in education sector is to make it a dominant sector in our mm. economy so that it is no less than 10 or 11 percent of uh, our GDP. Uh, because um, without the very successful education reform, the small nations won't be able to be successful in, right. in, in, in innovations and vice versa. So uh, we consider Georgia as a hub for innovations and educations and of course we're going to try our best to make the ecosystem in Georgia the most comfortable one. As you develop in your strategy and your platform, is the word sustainable investing become part of what you're thinking? You know, putting something in place that it's going to carry on for generations? Uh, well, of course, I think that that's a dream for, for of any person to yeah. start something that will have a legacy. Um, and of course, my dream is to make uh, the education right. sector, Georgia, a, a very big right. part of uh, the Georgian success. Uh, Georgia has uh, challenges. We have uh, painful challenges as well. You know that 20% of our territory is still occupied by Russia. Mm. And uh, I do believe that the best answer to, to this most painful challenge is, of course, consolidation of our democracy and very fundamental and innovative reforms like mm. we would like to conduct in the education sector. So uh, I would say that is my dream. Well, they, they say that having a great education solves everybody's problems. Uh, it helps in health care. It helps in, the, obviously, the economy. It helps in having quality of life. And uh, so it's really brilliant that you're, you're focused on that. It's, good, it's really great to hear that. So thank you very much for all your time, Prime Minister. Thank you. Thank you. It was my pleasure. Thank you. Bill, I want to thank you for sharing your interviews from the World Economic Forum in Davos. They were enlightening and should be a useful resource for those hoping to lead in the 21st century. I hope to have you on again soon. Thank you. It was an enjoyable talk. And thanks to our listeners. Please subscribe to our podcast, rate it, comment on it. And if you have money questions related to personal finance, investing, real estate, or careers that you'd like answered on future shows, please email wealthofknowledge at usnews.com. We'll review your emails and we'll try to answer a few on the next episode. Additionally, if you'd like to see video versions of these and more Leaders Talk interviews, 
please visit usnews.com leaders. Thanks for listening to the Leaders Talk series on Wealth of Knowledge. I'm Antonio Barbera. See you next week.